California reaches a vaccine milestone. In San Diego County, we're looking at almost 82% of people uh, that have at least one dose. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Inflation is up. So what exactly does that mean for your wallet? Food uh, is, is one area uh, where, where, where there's, there's a big impact. Uh, nationally, gasoline is up uh, almost uh, 50 percent uh, compared to a year ago. The history of race and vigilantism as two high-profile cases unfold, and we'll tell you about the last Fresh Sound concert series. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, a journey through computation, data analysis, and real-world applications. Learn more about the online Master of Data Science program from UC San Diego at omds.ucsd.edu. California has reached a considerable vaccine milestone, with 70% of the state's population now inoculated with at least one dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. While the number itself is a hopeful sign for an increasing rate of vaccination across the state, millions remain only partially vaccinated or not vaccinated at all. As the winter months approach, health experts warn that this lack of strength and immunity among so many in California could very well lead to another surge of cases. Here now to discuss how efforts have gone locally is KPBS health reporter Matt Hoffman. Matt, welcome back. Hey, Jade. How does San Diego's vaccination rate compare to the statewide rate? It's actually a little bit higher. Um, you know, the statewide rate, as you mentioned, now clocking in at 70%. Uh, in San Diego County, we're looking at 81%, almost 82% of people uh, that have at least one dose. So that's a, a pretty high number. And then if you look at fully vaccinated, uh, you know, the statewide rate, uh, a little bit higher than 66%. Um, in San Diego County, uh, it's about 73%. Is San Diego still a leader in the state when it comes to having its residents vaccinated? Definitely. I mean, even just looking at those numbers, we're higher than the statewide average. We're one of the counties that's helping bring that up. There are some smaller counties that do have some higher vaccination rates than San Diego, but definitely a leader in California. How have recently expanded efforts to vaccinate children aged 5 to 11 in San Diego gone so far? Yeah, so we've had a little bit of time. Uh, we, we have gotten some data from county health officials uh, that tell us uh, over 7,000 uh, kids ages 5 to 11 uh, have gotten at least their first dose uh, of the Pfizer vaccine. Um, and, and, you know, just, just anecdotally, um, you know, we were out uh, at the county Libwell Center uh, in Chula Vista yesterday. And while there was a, a, a significant good amount of people there trying to get their booster shots, um, the, the majority of people uh, were there. It was parents and kids um, who were there to get vaccinated. Um, and it is, you know, we, we talked to one gentleman who's there from uh, from Mexico. He came from Tijuana. Um, they're not vaccinating kids over 18 there. Um, so it's going to take some time for people because, you know, they have to, you know, either give their permission if it's a school event with like a permission slip or actually bring their kids. So a slow going process, but there was a lot of kids uh, in line. How are efforts to distribute booster shots going in San Diego County? 
definitely going slower than the rollout uh, for vaccines originally, right? Um, you know, we're not seeing any of the, the super big, large super stations. Uh, most of the booster shots, uh, a tip to check ahead, you, you likely need an appointment. Uh, there are some county sites uh, that are offering walk-ins, but you're going to want to check their website. Sometimes it's only on certain days. Um, sort of a slow rollout, um, but there are people, you know, um, that, that are getting them. You've done some reporting on San Diego residents and their reasoning behind getting a booster shot. What are you hearing from people in the community? Definitely talking to the people that are over the, you know, 65 and older group. They're getting it because, you know, not only does the CDC recommend that that group gets it, but because they say that they trust the science and they're following the science. And what we hear from a lot of people is that they're getting it because they, you know, just want to be as protected as possible from this virus. We know, especially in older people, that immunity can wane quicker than some of the younger people. So that's basically why they're getting it, to be as protected as possible. Nationally, there's been some confusion over who's actually eligible for a booster. Are we seeing that here? in San Diego as well. You know, we may have been seeing some of that before when the CDC was sort of saying, you know, okay, you know, older people can get it, you know, people that work in some high risk settings. But just just recently, last Friday, the state's public health director, you know, put out a notice saying, you know, don't turn away anyone. So now in California, if you're over the age of 18, and it's been at least six months since your dose, you can go in there and get your booster shot, uh, sort of no questions asked. You know, you don't have to provide any proof of having an underlying medical condition, even though before I think it was just self-attestation anyway. What kind of rhetoric are we hearing from local health officials about the need to get boosters and get younger children vaccinated? Yeah, you know, when boosters were first rolled out, they sort of said, hey, if you're eligible for a booster, go and get it. So they definitely want people to get a booster, uh, especially as we approach some of the holidays uh, where we know, you know, we've seen cases go up in the past. Obviously, this year could be a little bit different uh, with that vaccination wall, but they're definitely encouraging, you know, parents to go out there, um, bring some of their kids out. Uh, We do know that nationally, uh, the federal government's launching a campaign, not only targeting children, but targeting their parents too, and trying to address some of that misinformation that's maybe fueling some vaccine hesitancy among adults. Are local physicians and health officials worried about a winter surge? I think there's always a worry about a, a winter surge, um, especially, you know, he- hearing from the governor saying, you know, cases are starting to increase. I and mean, sort of the way Governor Newsom puts it is, you know, this is sort of simple. You know, we saw this happen before. We know how the virus acts now. We know a lot more about the virus, how contagious it can be, you know, in some of these indoor spaces. Um, and if there's, you know, some gatherings this holiday where there's a lot of people that are unmasked and somebody has it, um, it can spread uh, definitely extremely fast. Um, so it's something that, that they're definitely monitoring. But keep in mind, Jada. I mean, you know, here in San Diego County, you know, 73% of residents are fully vaccinated. So there is a wall of vaccination, uh, but we know with the Delta variant, how contagious it is. You know, experts have said that the virus will find those people who are unvaccinated. It's just a question of, is that, you know, enough people to sort of overwhelm the hospitals like we saw during the last winter surge? And finally, uh, breaking news just this morning, Pfizer said it is asking U.S. regulators to authorize its experimental pill for COVID-19, which has been shown to cut hospitalizations and deaths. Given what we know, how long do you suspect that process of getting authorized, uh, of getting an authorization to take? I think it's definitely going to be a sped up process. Something like we saw with the vaccines, you know, they want to maintain the integrity of the process, but they also want to make sure that if it is a life-saving drug, if it is a life-saving, you know, recipe that they want to get it to people. I've been speaking with KPBS health reporter, Matt Hoffman. Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Jade.
Prices at the gas pump and the supermarket are bringing home the big headlines about inflation, and those headlines have been screaming about the highest inflation rate in 30 years, a 6.2% jump in the consumer price index. And price hikes are even higher on individual items like gas, groceries, and automobiles. The truth is, right now, many Americans have more buying power than there are goods to buy. So, inflation. The question is, did bad policies create that situation, and can it be turned around anytime soon? Joining me is Alan Jin, economics professor at the University of San Diego, and Professor Jin, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Where are San Diegans seeing the biggest consumer price increases? Food at home is up uh, nationally uh, over 5%. Um, if, if you look at the individual components of that index in particular, what I would call the proteins have been up considerably. So in the category meat, poultry, fish, and eggs, that's up almost 12% year over year. Uh, These are national numbers as opposed to San Diego numbers, but I think the San Diego numbers will mostly reflect what's happening uh, across the country. So again, food uh, is, is one area uh, where, where, where there's, there's a big impact. As you mentioned also, though, uh, gasoline. Uh, nationally, gasoline is up uh, almost uh, 50% uh, compared to a year ago. And uh, we just recently in California here hit an all-time high in terms of the average price per gallon. Is our situation here in San Diego unique in any way, making us more or less prone to inflationary pressures? The, the thing that would be unique about San Diego is that we're kind of a cul-de-sac. So we're at the end of the line as far as the supply chain is concerned. And if there are disruptions in the supply chain, that could affect us here. Uh, another thing that we have uh, unique to San Diego, uh, but not unique to coastal California, is the high housing prices that we have here. Even during the pandemic, uh, the, the housing market remains strong. And as we're coming out of it, then what we're seeing is we're just seeing that the uh, cost of housing is soaring. Remind us what the pressures are that's creating this inflation. Why are these price increases happening? There's a, a, a wide series of events that's causing uh, this inflation. If, if we go and take a look at the food uh, side, there's been a number of weather-related incidents that are occurring just around the world. Uh, for example, there was this big heat dome earlier in the year over uh, North America, and that has devastated the uh, wheat harvest, um, not just in the U.S., but in Canada as well. It's been estimated that the Canadian wheat uh, harvest is going to be down 35% uh, this year compared then to compared to what was uh, uh, forecast. And, and so uh, not only does that have an impact on stuff made out of wheat, but it's affecting uh, the price of feed, for example because the corn crop has been affected as well. And so that has affected the price of meat. As I mentioned earlier, meat is up uh, almost 12% uh, compared to, to last year. And uh, high feed costs are, are one reason uh, as far as that's concerned. But uh, there's also been problems as far as the supply chain. Uh, we've got problems with the supply chain. Uh, offloading of ships is difficult. Uh, there's problems all up and down the supply chain. Uh, there's a shortage of, of, of drivers of trucks. Uh, there's also shortages of labor at uh, warehouses and distribution centers. And so that is hurting in the distribution of, of goods. And uh, that's leading to shortages and prices to rise. And then finally, uh, there's been a labor. Uh, there's been a problem as far as labor is concerned uh, in, in, the, in the sense that there's a lot of job openings, but uh, not enough people to fill those job openings. In 2020, an extra 2 million people retired compared to what was projected. There were also uh, a problem with women coming back to the, the workforce due to childcare issues. So that created a lot of job openings. 
And as a result, people are leaving their jobs at a record rate. Uh, a report just came out uh, last week that uh, September we had an all-time high in terms of the number, number of people quitting their jobs. And businesses now are having trouble you know, finding workers. Uh, they have to pay higher wages. And that is also contributing then to an increase in prices. Now, could we see this inflation as kind of the flip side of the good news that we are not in a pandemic recession? I think that's definitely the case. Uh, you know, part of the reasons why we have such a high rate of inflation compared to last year was that prices were depressed uh, last year. Uh, for example, uh, the prices of used cars. Well, that's because the used car market was depressed last year due to the fact that rental car companies were offloading their fleets because nobody was renting cars uh, because travel was down. Uh, and now those rental car companies are having to rebuild the, their fleets as a result of that. Uh, the price of used cars is, is up is up considerably. Actually, the, the price of used cars are up about uh, about twenty five percent compared to compared to last year. It's the rental rates that are up about uh, about forty percent. But but you could, you could apply this into all parts of the economy. Uh, the, the fact that the gas prices are so high is due to the fact that the economy is open now and people are driving, businesses are operating. We have production in factories. That has driven the price of oil from less than $10 a barrel at the bottom uh, of the recession last year to over $80 a barrel. So if the price of oil goes from $10 a barrel to over 80, that's going to cause gas prices then to, to increase. But again, that's the consequence then of the world economy reopening. Have government policies triggered inflation? That's a, a difficult thing to say. A lot of people, uh, for example, thought that these extra payments that people were getting due to uh, unemployment insurance uh, was keeping people out of the labor force. But now uh, those ex expired in September and we're still having then uh, a shortage of labor. So there were other factors then that, that caused then that shortage of labor. We did have a stimulus package passed earlier this year, so that put money, more money in, in people's hands. So, so that helped revive the economy. But as you mentioned, there's a trade-off then. As the economy revives, uh, people want to spend that money, and that, that could be then driving up, uh, driving up prices. Could the government do more to stop rising prices? I mean, could they increase interest rates, for example? That is a job then for the Federal Reserve, and technically the Federal Reserve then is independent from the government. And so uh, at this point, the, the, the Federal Reserve has held the line as far as interest rates are concerned. I think that you'll see interest rates rising in 2022, um, maybe up to up to a half a percent. Uh, and so that uh, will, will help in, in terms of slowing down uh, this inflation. Uh, it'll slow the, the growth of the economy a little bit, but, but I think there's enough underlying strength uh, in the economy that, that uh, it can take it. Alan, what things might it be a good idea to postpone purchasing right now? Yeah, so, so what happened was that during the uh, pandemic, uh, when things were shut down, people spend more time at home. Uh, either they were out of the job or they were working from home. And as a result of that, people started buying stuff related to the home, furniture, uh, appliances, uh, TVs, uh, computers, things, things like that. And as a result, uh, that has caused uh, shortages in those areas because the factories that were producing other goods had to be retooled in order then to produce the goods then that, that people wanted. And so that is also causing some of the problems that we're having then in the supply chain. So that's caused the price of, of things like computers and furniture to rise considerably. And so I think if you can put off uh, buying in those areas, I think we'll see prices come down in, in the future as the supply chain gets itself sorted out. And when do you think this inflation bubble will start to deflate? I think we're going to see in 2022 that uh, prices will still be rising faster than, than is desired, but the rate is going to be less. 
Um, as you mentioned, the, the last report had inflation at 6.2%. I think we'll see inflation into the 3% 3, 3 range in uh, 2022. Uh, that's still higher than the target that the Federal Reserve usually has of 2%, but I, I think we'll see a lot of the issues in the supply chain sorted out, not completely. And also then some of these, with these uh, unusual comparisons to a depressed year reverse themselves. Well, I've been speaking with Alan Jin, professor of economics at the University of San Diego. Alan, thank you very much. Thanks. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more mcasd.org. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Jade Heineman. Earlier in the show, economist Alan Jin talked about how people retiring and leaving their jobs since the pandemic has helped increase inflation. Many employers say they're having a hard time finding workers and the pressure is on to increase salaries. California Report host Saul Gonzalez wanted to see what hiring looks like now and what workers are thinking as they look for jobs. So he went to a jobs fair. All right, so good morning and welcome to the Legends Job Fair. After you go through your security screening, you'll come and check in at the check-in table. You'll scan the QR code for the specific job application that you would like to apply for today. And once again, good morning and welcome. Come on in. I've come to SoFi Stadium in Inglewood that's home to the Los Angeles Rams and Chargers. But this morning, jobs, not sports, are front and center. The stadium is looking for about 2,000 workers for both full and part-time positions, from cooks and bartenders to security guards and guest attendants. 24-year-old Palestina Washington has come here with high hopes. She's currently a home health care worker, but is tired of the low pay and is ready for a change. What are you looking for job-wise right now? Uh, just an, the next adventure. You know, each job is supposed to be something new, something uncharted. And I've never worked for a stadium. I would like to see what that life is like. And this is a great opportunity, too, because it's fresh. And it's screaming for help. <laughs> screaming for help. They're looking for a lot of people, hire a lot of people here. So if you say you can't get a job, you're not looking hard enough. In this economy right now? Right now. As of right now, yes. So I may, may I ask, what is the bare minimum for you uh, when you're looking for a new job now, whether it's pay or uh, time off? What's an absolute must-have for you right now? Benefits. Health know, and... Dental, vision, you know, the basics. And pay, if I can ask, could I assume something that's north of $20 an hour would be... Yeah, something, something that's livable. You know. Something where you could put food on the table, keep the roof over your head. I still have a little bit of change for gas. A little bit of change for gas. It is L.A. after all. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> for a wider view about the California labor market right now, I talked to Jaime Sedano. He helps run a union-backed training academy for workers in the hospitality field and co-organized this hiring fair. Sedano says the situation for workers has changed enormously in recent months, mostly for the good, as businesses recovering from the pandemic roll out the welcome mat for new hires. The fact that so many places shut down and so many businesses actually had to you know, close their doors, uh, this shows that you know, we're, we're opening back up. We're getting ready to bring the community back to work. 
think that folks here standing in line for a job are in a stronger position to get what they want from employers than they would have been before the pandemic, just the way the job market is right now? Absolutely. The reason why the market is so strong is because there is a lot of people that still can't or won't go back to work. Uh, and these folks have the ability to almost, you know, get what they want because there, there's so many more jobs than people right now. They got leverage right now. Correct. And people who actually get a, a gig here, who walk out of here or will hear about a job that they can get here will be paid from what to what, generally speaking? $16 and above. 16 up to $22. It really depends on the position. Uh, some so position. above California minimum. Oh, absolutely above California minimum. And Correct. that's kind of the norm now. And that is the norm, and especially working in a union environment with certain contracts, once you work enough hours, you do qualify for benefits also. But Sedano acknowledges that even with higher pay and more benefits, many Californians with new jobs will still struggle to get by because of the high cost of living in the state and growing inflation that's taking a bigger bite out of paychecks. And we'll note that California still has a fairly high official unemployment rate at 7.5%, and some studies indicate it's higher. But the people at this stadium jobs fair are hopeful that a new job here or someplace else will provide them with fresh starts. As she comes out of her employment interview, I run into Palestina, Washington again and ask how it went. I think it went really good. I like what I was hearing. The people seem friendly. They're, they seem like they, they want to teach you something more than what you know. So. And when do you think you're going to hear something back from them? Uh, they said within two weeks. And that will be my congratulations. Thank you for joining the team. Oh, so you could literally have a, a gig here yeah. within two weeks. Yeah. All right. Well, good luck to you. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Have a great day. That piece was reported by California Report host Saul Gonzalez. Two cases are unfolding in this country right now where white males took up arms and killed unarmed people. They claim in the name of public safety, and in both cases, they are also claiming self-defense. Right now, jury deliberations are underway. In the Kyle Rittenhouse case, lawyers for Rittenhouse say he was acting in self-defense when he killed two people during a social justice protest last year in Wisconsin. The trial over Ahmaud Arbery's killing is in its second week. Arbery was out for a jog in his Brunswick, Georgia neighborhood when he was gunned down by three white men who thought he looked suspicious. They, too, are claiming self-defense. This is where I want to talk about the intersection of vigilantism and race. Joining me is Dr. Adisa Alkabalan, professor of Africana Studies at SDSU. Professor Alkabalan, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much for having me. If you could put these two cases into historical context, the, the history between white vigilantes and law enforcement is long and painful. As early as colonial America, white colonists were deputized into slave patrolling and slave catching. They had the full weight of the law to apprehend enslaved people and form a militia in the event of slave revolts. So patrollers policed all movement and unsupervised activity through passes detainments, interrogations, um, unrestrained search and seizures of slave quarters. And this was legally sanctioned. Uh, And they also had uh, legally sanctioned on-spot violent punishment for the slightest infringement uh, of slave laws and customs. They were armed with guns, with whips, with bloodhounds. Uh, And the, the patrollers, they addressed some of the concerns or white concerns that 
uh, blacks were the foremost threat to their way of life. Uh, and again, they were authorized by, by county courts. So uh, slave patrols scrutinized every aspect of black lives with the power to spontaneously mete out you know, any corporal punishment that they deemed uh, fit. Uh, they were, you know, so to speak, the first responders to threats uh, and actual slave insurgencies. Uh, so the slave patrols were, you know, the closest armed defenders of white supremacist you know, social norms. Given that, do you feel like this is uh, this current moment in time is history repeating itself? You know, America is being America. The experiences of African Americans have not significantly uh, changed with regard to these issues of uh, vigilantism. Uh, or, or policing, you know, so there is a long pattern in history uh, of it that's on a uh, continuum. What role do you think the Trump administration played in emboldening this type of activity? Well, the Trump administration definitely emboldened, you know, many white Americans because of its rhetoric and close associations with white supremacists. I mean, Donald Trump's rhetoric uh, was mean-spirited, it was racist, and it was often violent. Uh, the insurrection that occurred on January 6th is, a very, is very relevant to this discussion uh, because it was a symptom of the toxicity of the Trump administration, but also reflective of the deep-seated historical racial uh, animus uh, among a specific population that exists in this country. So while Donald Trump is not you know, the boogeyman responsible for all racism in this country, certainly his administration emboldened a hateful and violent constituency in this country. How do you think this plays out as the movement for social justice continues? Well, it should remind us that the struggle to live in a truly egalitarian and just society continues. There is no room for any of us uh, to be complacent. Americans of good faith and good conscience must remain engaged and take every opportunity and every resource available to them uh, to fight for change. And I, I want to talk a bit more about the trial happening for the men who killed Ahmad Arbery. Uh, this week, the defense filed a motion and told the court, we don't want any more black pastors in here and explained their presence uh, could be intimidating to jurors. He even went to make a, a strange analogy to people dressed like Colonel Sanders wearing white masks in court. There's a lot to unpack there. What do you make of it? Well, I don't understand that analogy, uh, but, you know, the the irony uh, the tragic irony is that these men hunted Ahmad Arbery down and killed him. You know, the sheer terror and intimidation that he must have felt as a result of these men following, assaulting, and ultimately murdering him must have been unthinkable uh, to most of us. And then for these same thugs, if you will, uh, to raise issue with, you know, pastors, men of the cloth, uh, but more importantly, they are black men is unconscionable, but it also fits into the narrative that black men represent a threat to the American way of life. Mm. What are some of the things that stand out to you most in terms of how these cases are being handled in court? What stands out the most for me is that, generally speaking, white men have the luxury of claiming self-defense. Uh, unfortunately, uh, Black men and other people of color do not generally have that privilege. In fact, an entire movement 
was demonized for daring to embrace the notion of self-defense, referring to the, uh, the Black Power Movement, but also you know, affirming that Black lives matter is controversial, you know, is threatening. We're all familiar with the high profile George Zimmerman case, you know, and the stand your ground law in Florida, a law that, you know, didn't protect the black woman who, you know, shot a gun into the air to war off an abuser, uh, Marissa Alexander. Uh, But in any event, another thing that stands out is just the adultification of black boys. So while Kyle Rittenhouse is being betrayed uh, as a kid. He's often referred to as a kid. You know, 12-year-old Tamir Rice was gunned down within three seconds of the arrival of law enforcement, uh, who claimed that he looked like an adult. Uh, or Trayvon Martin, you know, who, believe, who was believed to have been an adult. That's what George Zimmerman alleged. Uh, but the narratives uh, are just very different, but more important than the narrative, the reality, the outcome. Uh, oftentimes uh, are are very different when uh, white men and boys are involved. What does justice look like to you in these cases? And where does the country go once they've concluded? Convictions would be a great start. But without a change in policy and the way that we police people of color, unless that changes, it will be just rinse and repeat. And after the year that 2020 was, uh, a lot of African-Americans were hopeful that this country was on a genuine, sincere path to change. But with these two particular cases, it was a reality check for a lot of African-Americans. And unfortunately, uh, many are not as hopeful as, as they were. I've been speaking with Dr. Adisa Al-Kabalan, professor of Africana Studies at SDSU. Professor Al-Kabalan, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome, and thank you for the invitation. Why do streets look the way they do? Why are they so often designed for cars first and pedestrians and cyclists second? KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen dove into those questions with Chuck Marone. He's president of the nonprofit Strong Towns and author of the new book, Confessions of a Recovering Engineer. So you chose to title your book, Confessions of a Recovering Engineer. What are you recovering from? Man, I'm recovering from... Decade, a decade or more of of uh, of indoctrination. I mean, really, when you become a civil engineer, when you become a municipal engineer, and you start doing things like traffic and sewer and water and all that stuff, th- there's a certain approach that is given to you that you inherit. Uh, you're given a book of standards. You're given like you know the best practices of a profession, and you have this expectation to follow that, particularly if you want to get ahead. And so for me, there was a certain uh, kind of mystique that came with joining this profession and learning those things and and, and adopting them as like the way things should be uh, that I had to unlearn, that I really had to go through and, and, and get out of my brain. Throughout your book, you keep returning to this one particularly horrific crash that happened on December 3rd, 2014 in Springfield, Massachusetts. Tell us what happened there. A mom uh, with two little girls was leaving the library in Springfield, Massachusetts, uh, late at night. Uh, they crossed the street, uh, headed to the parking lot, which is directly across this four-lane uh, highway that's been built through the middle of the city. 
Um, they did this uh, in kind of the most natural of ways. And a car came along, struck them, uh, put the one girl in the hospital and then killed seven-year-old Destiny Gonzalez. Um, this has happened many times at this location. And in fact, we're speaking today on uh, November 12th, 2021, on November 11th, yesterday, uh, one of the employees of the library walked out of the library, was walking across the street in this exact same location to get in her car, and she was struck and killed in the same spot. And so this is a crossing uh, that has a long history of taking lives and a, a long history of mismatch between the design of the street and the goals and objectives of the engineer in this case and the health and safety of this community. A lot of these aspects that make a street very unsafe or inhospitable for pedestrians, I learned from your book, are actually designed to be safe, at least from the perspective of an old school traffic engineer. So describe for me what a safe street looks like from that perspective, and what do you see wrong with that picture? When you're designing a highway, there's some very like clear things that you do to make the highway safer for drivers. Uh, you widen out the lanes, you add in recovery areas, you add in clear zones. You, you basically create a lot of buffer so that the driver of the vehicle has a lot of room to react to things that might happen. You, from a design standpoint, forgive the mistakes that a driver would make by creating all this buffer. When you bring that mindset into an urban area, what happens is that urban areas are full of complexity. It, it, they're full of automobiles, you know, that's randomly stop or turn or cut across traffic. You have people walking, people walking across the street in crosswalks, not in crosswalks. You have people on bikes, you have people in wheelchairs, you have the dog that gets loose and runs across the street. You have the kid who chases the kickball. So you have all this complexity, the simultaneous that complexity, what you have done with the street design is actually signal to drivers. We've got your back. We have provided you with lots of buffer room. You've got all kinds of safety factor. And the reality is, is that is the wrong message to send to drivers. Because what drivers do in, in an urban area, when you give them lots of room, is they speed up. And we've just, we're signaling the wrong things to drivers. We're signaling to drivers that this is a simple environment like a highway. And so you don't have to pay really rigid, close attention. And most of the time, that's very true. But in these random occurrences where things are not where we expect them to be, tragedy occurs, and it occurs far too often. What are the common themes that you find in cities that have made a lot of progress toward better street design and safer street design? What are the ingredients for success? I see a lot of places that want to do things differently. And then they run up against the rules and regulations. And the ones that are very um, dogmatic about like what the rules and regulations are, they get stuck at that point. They struggle. They're like, well, we can't do this because dot, dot, dot. And the, the ones that um, thrive are the ones not that say, well, throw out the rule book and you know, be careless and like, who really cares? The, the, they are like, okay, here's an obstacle we've run up against. How do we get around this obstacle? How do we find a local adaptation to this? And a lot of times that involves changing staff. A lot of times that involves you know, creating a different channel for where this workflow would go. But a lot of times it just requires us to sit down and collaborate. San Diego has set some very ambitious goals 
with uh, cutting back on driving. It's adopted a Vision Zero goal to end all traffic deaths and serious injuries by 2025. It uh, recently or is in the process of updating its climate action plan, which calls for half of all trips in the city to be made via biking, walking, or public transit by 2035. But I don't think city leaders have a very clear picture of how they're going to get there exactly, how they'll accomplish that. What do you think would have to change, and how would our streets and our neighborhoods look differently if that is the goal? People would have to accept congestion as not a problem, but as actually a manifestation of the system that we built, a system that needs to change if you're going to meet those goals. And you would actually have to embrace congestion for what it is, which is a sign of uh, demand for local alternatives. And by local alternatives, that kind of gets to the second part, which is in order to reach these goals, which I think are very good goals, very worthy goals, um, what you need to have is not a transportation approach. You need to have a neighborhood development approach because to get to that goal requires people to have alternatives near them that they can walk to, alternatives near them that they can bike to. It doesn't, you're not going to get there by taking the, the strode environment that you've created today or the highway environment you've created today and like appendage a trail on the side of it or you know, appendage like an overpass to get people to walk over. That, that's, not, that's not the way it's going to work. The only way you get to that goal is to actually build neighborhoods, neighborhoods where people can replace their longer distance trips with local trips. So I need milk, I need bread, I need to get my hair cut, I need to do, you know, whatever basic like thing I do on a typical day. That's got to be, there has to be an alternative for that locally. That was Chuck Marone, author of Confessions of a Recovering Engineer, speaking with KPBS's Andrew Bowen. Marone is giving a talk on Thursday at 4 p.m. at the San Diego History Center in Balboa Park. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Hindman. Music that's out of the mainstream can be left unheard. But that hasn't been the case in San Diego. For the last 24 years, one woman has maintained a series of concerts devoted to cutting-edge music. This Friday, the last Fresh Sound concert takes place, and its curator, producer, manager, and creator, Bonnie Wright, will move on to her next thing. Bonnie has become an icon in San Diego and throughout the avant-garde music world for her Fresh Sounds concerts, it's a pleasure to have her on Midday. Bonnie, welcome. Thank you. Nice to be here. How difficult was it to make the decision to wrap up the Fresh Sound series? Oh, it was very hard. The word that comes to mind that I've used is bittersweet. And what I said again and again, but I like it, is I've had 224 concerts in 24 years, I'm now 83, and eight times three is 24. So that was my signal. And it's as good a reason as any, so I suppose. Is that right? <laughs> I guess. <laughs> <laughs> now, for someone who's never been to one of the Fresh Sound concerts, can you describe the kind of music they might have heard there? 
my idea was to bring music to San Diego that they wouldn't otherwise hear. And so I had spent a lot of time in New York and I got to know musicians there. So I bring them here. Well, at first I brought people from San Diego, UCSD, because I went back to school as an older person uh, in the music department. So the first concert was Steve Schick and I should bring up my history. But then after I went to New York, I, um, I've started bringing them here. Have the concerts been difficult to maintain through the years? No, they haven't. The main thing is to not do it for, for money because you never, ever make any money on this. So if you do it for the love of music, then it's easy. Here's a track featuring UC San Diego professor of music Stephen Schick, no stranger to fresh sounds, along with the Bang on a Can All-Stars and others in a piece called Cheating, Lying, Stealing. people show up to a uh, typical concert? Well, I'm always pleased or was always pleased uh, when at least 40 to 45 people showed up, but sometimes there was less. For this final concert, we're sold out, which is 125 people. And what about that thing about getting artists to perform for these concerts? How have you managed that? Mainly when, like, for people, the artists from out of town, I would ask them, you know, when they're in the neighborhood in L.A. or San Francisco, then come on down to San Diego. And they were uh, always happy to perform. They, you know, especially the, uh, I guess you could call it avant-garde or contemporary music, people don't get that big of an opportunity because people like what's familiar. And you would sometimes put them up? At your house? Almost always, yes. And that was really the fun part because I got to know them. And that was always good. And and so many heavy-hitting names and cutting-edge music have performed at Fresh Sound concerts. Can you, can you remind us of some? Well, Joey Goodry, who played solo bassoon and has now become well-known. I had a lot of them before they were well-known. Gion Riley. Mary Oliver, who is from San Diego, but now lives in Amsterdam. Uh, Matt Welch, who plays bagpipes, <laughs> which was fun. Uh, Nelson Alex Klein. You have had Anthony Davis, uh, who won the Pulitzer for his Central Park Five. He's been on our show as well. And your mentor, George Lewis. Well, he, he has been a good friend since 1993, since I went back to UCSD in the music department as a, in quotes, older student. And he's remained a good friend, but he helped me get started. He had the first ideas of who should perform, and he just helped me along the way. And of course, he performed there too. 
This kind of music is often difficult for people to understand or enjoy. Do you agree it's an acquired taste? Yes, because people like what's familiar, and I never presented it anything that was familiar because my whole idea, as I said before, was to open ears. You have to listen to everything because if you don't, how do you hear what you like? Some you won't like, some you do, but you got to listen. What advice would you give to someone, you know, who'd like to start maybe dipping a toe into cutting edge music? How should they start? I would say by listening to people like Terry Riley, which is what I did and how I learned. And he did uh, NC, which was very new back in those days. And then I and I listened to him, and then that moved me forward to Steve Reich and Philip Glass and all kinds of other uh, more contemporary composers. And what's next for you now? Oh, God, I wish I knew. I have to find something, that's for sure. I'm thinking maybe I could have some house concerts. So we'll see. I'm going to give myself a month or two, but then I'll start plotting at the next thing. So, Bunny, what's on the program for the final Fresh Sound concert this Friday? Stephen Schick will be performing. He's playing music by Frederick Shevsky, Vinko Globacar, Eric Griswold, and Roger Reynolds. This Friday, the final Fresh Sound concert takes place at the San Diego Dance Theater at Liberty Station, and the performer is Stephen Schick, UC San Diego music professor who opened the Fresh Sound series and now will close it out this Friday night. I've been speaking with Bonnie Wright, creator of the Fresh Sound concert series. Bonnie, thank you very much. You're very welcome, and thank you. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.